Acts chapter 17. This uh, study today is really kind of uh, abbreviated. We're going to continue on through the rest of this chapter today and next week. Uh, but we want to just read a couple of verses together, as we do every Sunday. We read a portion of, of our text. And uh, so if you are able to, would you please stand and, and join me in reading verses 22 and 23 of Acts chapter 17. The title of this message today is, The God That Can Be Known. And we're going to continue that into next week as well. But Acts 17, verses 22 and 23 is the text that we're going to read today. And as we do every Sunday, let's read together and let's read aloud. Verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship... I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, Him I proclaim to you. Shall we pray? Father, this morning we are so grateful, so thankful, for the privilege of reading and now studying your word. We ask for the anointing and blessing and outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us today that we may understand fully and know what these verses that we'll be studying today mean and not only what they mean to our minds but what they stir us up to do in our hearts and in our actions father awaken us in these last days to the responsibilities and and, and to the very calling that you have given to us as your children to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and a dying world, to a, a world that is filled with hopelessness, though they cry out for hope. May we give them that hope in Jesus Christ and help us, Father, to prepare to do that by this study today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Y'all may be seated. <clears throat> I have to mention that um, what I'm going to share with you initially here at the beginning of this message is something that I would probably and normally finish with. But there's good reason why I want to begin this way today. A few days following the national tragedy that we know as 9-11... September, uh, Tuesday, September the 11th, 2001. A few days following that, there was a service that was held at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., a, a memorial calling for a National Day of Mourning. In an effort to please every one of different faiths, there were uh, these particular religious leaders. There was a Muslim cleric. There was a Buddhist priest. There were so-called Christian ministers of a liberal bent and Billy Graham. Talk about trying to please everybody. 
There seemed, though, after all of this, to be a unifying in our country, a resurgence of patriotism not seen in 20 years since the time of the USA hockey team at, uh, defeating the Soviet Union in 1980. And then there was the song, God Bless America, on the lips of many an American. We even heard some of our senators and congressmen gather together from both parties or any party and singing this song on the steps of the Capitol. And even though the song has died away in most people and it seems like everything went back to, well, I can't call it normalcy, but we went back to, you know, biting and backbiting and whatnot politically. It still, begs, it still begs the question. When we think of what we were saying when we said, God bless America, the question is, what God were we singing to? What God were we singing to? And if we continue to sing that song, what God are we singing to today? What God are we praying to in this nation? And I speak as a whole. What God are we praying to? Are we praying to Molech, the God of pleasure? The God that thousands of years ago, people were sacrificing their children in the very belly of the idol Molech? And are people today still offering unto Molech their children as 40, nearly 40 million unborn children have been aborted. The God of pleasure, Molech. Are we praying and singing to Allah, the God of Islam, who, by the way, is also the God of war? May I remind you that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a God of life, and that His very Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is the Prince of Peace. Are we singing and praying to Buddha, the God of those who don't even believe in God, but think that God is in themselves, the God consciousness, as it were? Are we singing and praying to Krishna, one, of, one God out of millions of Hindu deities? Or are we singing and praying to the God of Mammon, the God of commercialism and power? When you think about it, we have become as pantheistic Greeks who had made gods of everything they could think of. And in case they missed any god who was out there pouting and, and offended because they had not built an altar to him, they built an altar to him and they inscribed it to the unknown god. Whoever you are, whatever you might be, we haven't forgotten you. Bless us. Bless America. I want you to listen to what God says about this particular issue. What God? Isaiah 43 verses 10 through 11 says, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me. 
And understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. God is saying, I am God, and there is no other. And you can know me, because He says that you may know and believe me. He is a God that can be known, you see. Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. One God. Isaiah 44, verse 8, Do not, be afra- do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declare it? And declared it, you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. And I tell you what, if God says I know not one, we can believe that. There is not another God. There's only one God. And Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 and 6. A statement by God to Cyrus, the Medo-Persian, who wasn't even yet born. But a mention to him, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Later on in Isaiah 45, verse 21, God says, tell and bring forth your case. Yes. Let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. I think God is making it very clear that there is only one God and He's it. He is God and there is no other. And so in the National Cathedral were gathered men who believe and worship other gods. And was this not a part of the great sin of Israel? Was this not a part of the great sin of Israel to where God has to say through Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. How we have watered down this idea of who God is. Jump seven years from that time to today. Five Virginia State Police chaplains, and this was in the recent week this news came out, five Virginia State Police chaplains were forced to resign simply because they prayed publicly in the name of Jesus. Now this affects me because I'm a police chaplain. I'm a chaplain for the city, I'm a chaplain for the county with the sheriff's office, I'm a chaplain for the state with the Department of Public Safety. This affects me. They were forced to resign. They lost their jobs because they prayed publicly in the name of Jesus. Police superintendent, as the story goes on, police superintendent Colonel W. Stephen Flaherty single-handedly created, then enforced, a strict non-sectarian prayer policy at all public gatherings, censoring and excluding Christian prayers, then accepted the resignation of five chaplains who refused to deny Jesus or violate their conscience by watering down their prayers. 
Praise God for that. The sad part about this is that the governor of the state of Virginia has defended this. And to get elected as governor of Virginia, pandered the Christian vote. Confusion and double standards. Confusion and double standards exist strongly in a nation that had been founded by the founding fathers upon the word of God, upon the Judeo-Christian ethic, and certainly upon the God that says, I am God and there is no other. Now, with all that in mind, jump back nearly 2,000 years and we find the Apostle Paul in the midst of the same sort of environment invited to share his message with the intellectuals on Mars Hill only to be verbally attacked when he mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have times changed? Have times changed? You know, as these issues should provoke us, and by the way, the word provoke here is very important to our study this morning, but as these issues should provoke us, and by that I mean that they should stir us even to the point of irritation, because that's what the Greek word means when we read it in just a moment. To stir up, even to the point of irritation. As these issues should provoke us, they should also urge us. They should also spur us on. They should stimulate us to stand even more firmly on the Word of God and on the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is certainly what we find Paul doing in Athens as we continue on in our study of the book of Acts. Let's go to verse 15. Let's, let's begin our study here. Now you understand why I could have ended with all of that. But I wanted to start with it first. Because it just brings us right to the very same atmosphere, the very same conditions, to a certain degree. In verse 15, and this is just to tie in this with what we had studied before. So those who conducted Paul from Berea, by the way, and I'll explain it in a moment, So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. And now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. There's the word. His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. And therefore... He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. And then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection." Now let's go back a little bit into chapter uh, 17 because early on we see that the disgruntled Jews from Thessalonica, the ones who had rejected Paul's message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, had traveled some 46 miles to Berea to stir the people up and cause them to fight against Paul and the mission work that he was doing. 
So as they were seeing this, the brethren in Berea sent Paul away to Athens, and upon his arrival, he calls for Timothy and Silas to join him in Athens to assist him there. And so the brothers from Berea leave immediately so that they can give that message to Silas and Timothy. But those two men probably stayed in Berea a good while to assist the work that was going on there and, and to establish the church before they moved on. And eventually they do move on with Paul in Athens for a very short time. But let's consider Athens for just a moment, the place where Paul is at this point. In its heyday, some seven centuries before Jesus Christ came to this earth in the flesh and had his earthly ministry here, Athens was, that was the place to be. Athens was the in place. It was, it was the hot spot of the world. The native home of Socrates and Plato. Athens was the intellectual capital of mankind. And even when Athens was, was still, you know, it was, it was a city kept, it was, it was, Rome still, you know, had the empire, but they kept Athens in its Greek splendor. And, consider, and continue to call it the intellectual capital of mankind. Because art and literature and oratory and religion resided there within that place called the cradle of society, and of democracy, I should say. The cradle of democracy being Athens. Athens illustrates to what great heights of achievement man can ascend and still be ignorant of God. Now isn't that an interesting thing? Because there's a parallel that we can run with Athens and, and, and the United States of America. And please understand this, I love this country. And I know many of you love this country and have served this country. And we appreciate it. But let's, let's consider a few things here. The parallel that I want to draw is that I can say very, very clearly that even America today illustrates to what great heights of achievement man can ascend and still be ignorant of God. Mathematics, science, philosophy, logic are only a few things that Athens was famous for. And yet for all of that, Greek civilization was spiritually bankrupt. And you know this because if you've ever studied Greek mythology, you wonder where the, where they get these stories. And, they, and, 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 and to some extent they had the people believe them. They were spiritually bankrupt. They were spiritually empty. With all of this art and literature and oratory and philosophy, empty. And this is what provoked Paul. This is what began to stir up in Paul. You see, the Greek culture was promoting an idolatry so gross that it provoked Paul, stirring him to do something about it. And what did Paul do when he was provoked? What did Paul do when he was provoked and stirred in his heart this way? You know, he did what he always did. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Paul was provoked, he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't see Paul carrying around banners and, and, and you know, placards, you know, say, and destroy all of your idols. He goes and he preaches Christ. Specifically, we are told that twice he proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus. 
Verse 18, it says, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? I'll explain the word babbler. just literally means seed picker, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So here they were, he preaches Jesus and the resurrection, and they think that the names Jesus and the resurrection were both names of gods. Because that's how they thought. And they were ready to build another idol now to another god. Because that's all they ever did in Greece and in Athens. Down in verse 31, if you'll jump down there, notice it says, and this is Paul speaking, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, speaking of Jesus Christ. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Twice he speaks about resurrection. Now, I'm going to explain that more in next week's study about the message that Paul gives them and why he chooses, and certainly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but why he chooses uh, to speak on the resurrection as he did there. And of course it has to do with these philosophers and the philosophy that he's dealing with at that time. But with all that in mind, in comparison to the Greek culture of Paul's time, we have to say that America is no different. We have to say that America is no different because intellectually, think about this, intellectually Athens was great. Religiously, it was deep. Architecturally, it was beautiful. They had it all, and yet they were empty because they didn't have Jesus. Now, think about that. America today, intellectually, we think of all of the colleges and universities that we have. Unfortunately, most of the colleges and universities and their philosophers and their teachers and all are mostly atheists. But they consider themselves intellectually great. So, America, is it intellectually great? Religiously, it was deep. Religiously, it is deep. I'll tell you how deep it is. But uh, there's all kinds of religions here. And certainly, the founding fathers, when, when, when uh, they, they began to you know, construct the, the, uh, the government of this, of this nation, it was based upon freedom of religion. By the way, not freedom from religion. Freedom of religion. So, in that particular sense, we've become such a pluralistic society. But, nonetheless, it's deep. Architecturally, if you look at the very nation's capital itself, it's a beautiful thing. Think about this for just a moment. The nation's capital. Many of the buildings uh, that uh, have existed for a very long time. Many of the government buildings, Capitol, and, and uh, Library of Congress, the Washington Monument, all of these particular monuments, Jefferson and, and so on and so forth, uh, every one of them has some reference to God. Every one of them has some reference to God or to the Ten Commandments or to something that has to do with the Lord God Himself. Until now. Because if anybody's been keeping up with what's taking place in Washington today, uh, they have built it or, or are building this, this new visitor center. I think it's costing somewhere around $600, billion, or $600 million. And in this visitor center, which is there at the Capitol, it is an underground visitor center, very large visitor center there, but nowhere on the, the grounds, nowhere in the, the visitor center itself, because of what the architects wanted and what they 
encourage the, the Congress and, and all to accept is that there is no mention of God in the visitor center. They're having some problems with the history that they're teaching there because it's revisionist rather than proper and true. This is our visitor center today. As a matter of fact, one congressman said that this is the $600 million, or maybe it's $60 million, that sounds $600, whatever it is, it's a $60 million uh, godless pit. That we changed. Are we like Athens? You see, we have it all. We've been considered the greatest nation in the world. We have it all, yet we have nothing without Jesus Christ. And so when we are provoked by the worldly things that abound around us, the action that we should be stirred to is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God to save. It is the power of God to save. Romans 1, verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Interesting that in this translation it says the Greek. We know it's a Gentile, but how specifically it becomes for us that it mentions also for the Greek. It was for the people in Athens. It was for those that Paul went there uh, actually just in passing. Now, please understand this. With everything that I've said, I'm not saying that we can't be politically active. I believe that we are all citizens here of the, of the United States. And if we are, then, then we have the privilege of voting. And we should take that privilege seriously. Which means that as Christian citizens, that we should be very discerning, that we should be praying about this upcoming election, that we should be, with, with all of our heart, looking and reading and hearing and, and trying to understand fully, completely, that we might vote wisely and prayerfully. And as I've said many times, this election is probably the most important election. They're all important, but because of when we live and the times in which we live and what is yet to come, because we're waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in the last days. I don't know whether you believe that or not. I believe that. And by seeing the condition of the world and seeing what's happening in our own country today, I think we're pretty much in the last days. And with all that in mind, you know, we need to be politically active. But, so, so I'm not saying that we can't be politically active or that we can't boycott or we can't write our elected officials or representatives or, or get involved with certain causes or movements. I'm not saying that. But too often, and please understand, too often we do those things instead of continuing to live and to share the simple but life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we've been called to do, folks. Problem is, we try too often to take on the culture using its methods rather than trusting in the spiritual weapons at our disposal as Christians. And do you know that you have spiritual weapons? Because the battle that we are in is not a physical battle so much as it is a spiritual battle. Paul references this for us many times, but in two particular places. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. 
casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual. They're mighty in God for pulling down these strongholds. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. A passage that most of you are familiar with. A passage that deals with the, the, the armor of God. Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Notice that it doesn't say just put on some parts of the armor. It says put on the whole armor of God. I've written a, I wrote, wrote an article years ago in, in the Police Association magazine, a little newsletter. It talked, talked a little bit about you know how they, as police officers, have to prepare for the day. They, they, they won't go out that door without their weapon. They won't go out without their belt. They won't go out without their, their, uh, 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 their, their vest. You know, I mean, to leave any of that stuff, you know, would, would leave them vulnerable. They have to go ready and prepared with everything that they need. No sense of going out with, going with your pistol and no bullets, you know. <laughs> it's not Barney Five here, you know. And so it's a matter of you be prepared. Christians, folks, we need to go out the doors every day with the full armor of God, the whole armor of God on. Why? Because you see it says that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. He tells us twice. Once is important, twice is most important. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore. So now he emphasizes the standing part of it. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. In other words, putting on the belt of truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Faith. Do you trust the Lord, folks? Do you trust that He's going to go with you in every, every step that you take, in every place that you go? Wherever it is that you are, wherever it is that you work, wherever it is that you go, do you know that God goes with you? Do you have the shield of faith? Do you know that you can trust the Lord each and every day of your life? This will become important in just a moment when I talk about how many people today are living without that faith. Taking the shield of faith which will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation, that which guards our who we are, our soul, our mind, our heart. Take up the, 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 the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the, the only offensive weapon here, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. You see... We need to be provoked about what's going on in this country today. We need to be stirred up. Be careful that you don't get stirred up to the point of anger. 
If there is an anger, and I'll, and I'll explain that with Paul in Athens, but it has to be one that leads you to do what is right and what is what we've been called to do. So get stirred, but don't lose your focus. Get stirred, but don't lose your focus. This is the main point for today. This is pretty much what we're looking at today. We'll add to that next week, but get stirred today. Get stirred, but don't lose focus. Don't lose your focus. And we see this in the Apostle Paul. You see, you certainly would expect, you would expect a missionary or a minister to, to stay focused on preaching Jesus. I mean, it's their calling and oftentimes it's their vocation. But what we've seen in the book of Acts is that every believer, regardless of their vocation, was talking about Jesus to people they encountered at home, at work, and even in the marketplace. And by the way, Paul is going to be one who works in the marketplace on a daily basis. So every believer in Jesus Christ is a minister. Every believer in Jesus Christ is a missionary. And so we all need to sharpen and maintain our focus, especially when we are stirred or provoked. You see, as Paul waited for Timothy and Silas there in Athens, and that could have taken days if not weeks, because they didn't have the rapid transit that we ourselves have today. Days or weeks. Could have even been a couple of months. As Paul waited for Timothy and Silas, he more than likely walked around the city of Athens. Never been there before that we know. And as he's there walking around, you know, brother, you know, he heard so much about Athens, heard so much about the city. Took his little tour guide paper, you know, a tour guide scroll, walking around to see the sites, but he couldn't see many of the sites. Why? Because the city was full of idols. The city was full of temples and shrines to gods. So he's surveying the city of Athens and he sees these thousands of altars. And I'm not saying hundreds, thousands. Thousands of altars to various gods. You know that someone once said that it was easier on the main street of Athens to meet a god than it was to meet a man. <laughs> Strange, isn't it? But you know, it was more than that. It was more than that. Because everywhere he looked, he could see men and women pursuing idolatry as they lived in ignorance of Jesus. You know that we can do the very same thing today in our own country. We can look everywhere and see men and women pursuing idolatry as they live now and today in ignorance of Jesus Christ. It is a very strange thing, but it has happened, and I'm sure some of you have encountered this, to talk to somebody who maybe, you know, they've heard the name Jesus, because they, you know, it, it's become for some people a curse word. But to talk about Jesus as a person who came from God, who is God in the flesh, coming to this earth to die for the sins of men, you know, when you, when you share the gospel to them, some of them look at you like they've never really heard or understood what Jesus or who Jesus is, or what He is or what He represents. Have you ever encountered that? You know, that's an interesting thing. But it may not be a lot of people, but it's happening in our country today. And it gives indication of how 
the gospel and, and, and Christianity and Christian things and Christian prayers and, and, and whatnot are trying to be suppressed in our society and in our schools in particular, our public schools. can't celebrate Christmas in public schools anymore. But you can celebrate winter festival, winter holiday. I thank God for those that are brave enough to go and say, you know, we're going to do Christmas songs. We're going to put up a nativity scene, you know. Not to say that those things are, but it's just to say, you know what? We have the freedom. We have the freedom. So he's telling us different. So, we look around. We can see men and women in this country pursuing idolatry. Whether it's pursuing things or idolizing people. What a wonderful name for a TV program, American Idol. Idolizing people. And yet, how ignorant people are of Jesus Christ. But the anger, you see, the anger that was stirred within Paul was not toward the Athenians as it was toward Satan, the great deceiver and the great tormentor of mankind, for enslaving them with this idolatry and in this idolatry. That's where our anger needs to be focused. How, how, how people have been deceived and blinded in our country today. Just think of this one little issue. Separation of church and state. I've had people tell me that there is a, a law of separation of church and state, and there isn't. There is not one. I said, would you please show me that? I can show you where that phrase comes from, a letter of, of Thomas Jefferson with someone else. But as a law, it's not a law. I can show you the Constitution, the First Amendment, and what we have, the freedom to do. That's law. But you see, now everybody is trying to change the terminologies, problems, you see. Satan deceiving, tormenting people in slavery. I, I am, I'm amazed. I am so amazed. When you read the Declaration of Independence and you think of that phrase, you know, that uh, uh, the pursuit of life, liberty, uh, you know, the uh, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, you know. There was a philosopher that once said, you know, the, the pursuit of happiness usually ends up uh, for people with unhappiness. That pursuit is, is full of unhappiness. Just wanting to get happy, you know, be happy or just have things, you know, whatever, many times leads to, leads to unhappiness. Think about when we say, well, I have the freedom to do whatever I want to do. I have the freedom to you know, go out and, and party and drink and have drugs and do all these. I have the freedom. No, you really don't because you know, there are laws about things too. But we've gotten to the point where we say, well, I have the freedom to do whatever I want to do sexually, what I want to do here and there and do it. You know. and, and, and you know what it does? When you think that you have that freedom, it actually puts you in the bondage. And every one of you who knows this about bondage to sin or bondage to drugs or bondage to any kind of, 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 of sexual impropriety or whatever, think about this. It is, it, it, you say you have freedom, but it's all bondage. 
Because we have forsaken the God that has given us freedom in Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. So again, with this in mind, go to verse 17 of our text here in Acts 17. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. Where was the first place Paul always went? He went to the synagogue because he knew that he would have Jews there who know, who were supposed to know the Word of God, who were supposed to have the Hebrew Scriptures, but he would also know that there will be Gentile worshipers there. So he could reach both Jew and Gentile in the synagogue, and he reasons with them. What does that tell us? He reasoned with them. That means he argued with them, right? Because of Thessalonica, that word was used there, and we realize that there was a dispute, and very few Jews came to the Lord in Thessalonica. Whereas in Berea, if you remember, in Berea, they checked the, the you know, they, they they read the scriptures daily to see that what Paul said was true. And so many Jews came to Christ in, in, in Berea. So here again we find that he is reasoning with them in the synagogues, which means there's argument going on. But then it says, and in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. Oh, they just happened to be there. Well, Paul just happened to be there too. And when Paul was there, he just happened to tell them about Jesus. And he just happened to tell them about the gospel. And he just happened to tell them about what Jesus did for them. And he happened to tell them that Jesus died for their sins and rose again from the dead. He just so happened that, that, it, that that's what he did daily. And he was by himself, by the way. Paul was by himself. There was no one with him. Timothy wasn't there. Silas wasn't there. And some people would say, well, you know, didn't the Lord send us out in twos, you know? Well, yeah, he did with his disciples. But there's no written rule that says you can't witness Christ by yourself. This is the Apostle Paul here. This is his heart. This is his passion to preach Christ. So, you know, the, the, he, he wasn't going to wait for them. As a matter of fact, he was waiting for them. Probably taking a, a, a sabbatical to a certain extent until they arrived there. But with all of the idols, he couldn't, he, he was so sturdy, he couldn't just keep silent. And so as, as his custom was, he went to the Jewish synagogue, he taught the Jews and the Gentiles were there about Jesus. He, he spent time in the marketplace, which was called the Agora, preaching publicly. You know, he reasoned with those in the, in the synagogue. And he probably reasoned with many of them in the marketplace as well. But this, is, this was where his focus needed to be sharp. Because all throughout the Agora were countless temples and shrines and statues and public buildings. And this was the backdrop as Paul reasoned with men about the true God and His only begotten Son. And by doing what he was doing on a daily basis, he evidently made quite a stir because in verse 17, I'm sorry, in verse 18, it says, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? By the way, the Areopagus, you know, as, as, as they brought him there, that, that was actually the Supreme Court of Greece and the Supreme Court of Athens. Just west of, you know, the Acropolis, this is where they met, on Mars Hill. We'll talk about that next week, a little bit more in detail. They brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which we speak, or which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. And verse 21 is interesting, and I'll talk about it in a moment. For all the Athenians and the foreigners were there 
who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. That's all they did. They just met around there just, you know, doing nothing else but just telling or hearing some new thing. So Paul encountered two groups of people. First of all, he encountered the Epicurean philosophers. The Epicurean philosophers were those who followed a man, a philosopher named Epicurus, who lived from 341 to 270 B.C., and uh, the, the uh, Epicurean philosophers felt that the chief purpose in life, and listen to this, that the chief purpose in life was pleasure and happiness. Now, they didn't deny the existence of gods, but they felt that the gods did not interact with man. In practice, their philosophy led to a life of gross indulgence. Because they were seeking pleasure, they sought pleasure in many, many places. But to understand the balance of the Epicurean philosophy, you need to understand this. They believed in a maximum amount of pleasure and a minimum amount of pain. That was their balance. A maximum amount of pleasure and a minimum amount of pain. In other words, they were living for the present moment only. Living for the present moment only. Epicurean philosophy is, is kind of, you know, trickled down into our, our lifestyle as well. I was mentioning last night with, with, with an uh, executive chef that comes to our church, he was, comes on Saturday night, and uh, mentioned, uh, you know, when you, when you talk about, you hear the word Epicurean, you a lot of times are, are, uh, are seeing that word in, in the midst of, uh, of uh, gourmet uh, cooking and food, you know, the, the Epicurean thing, you know. Nowadays it's just about food, but before it was everything else. <laughs> I guess you can grossly indulge in food as much as in other kinds of pleasures. So what they did was they tried to overcome the senses and appetites and to attain tranquility by filling and satisfying those senses. That's how they did it. That, that was their philosophy. On the other hand, the Stoics, Stoics were the followers of a philosopher named Zeno, who lived from 320 to 250 B.C. The Stoics were pantheistic and fatalists in their beliefs. By pantheistic, I mean that they believed everything was God and God was in everything. Thus, everything came from God, both good and evil, and therefore all should just be accepted. In other words, life is, is lived. If you face certain problems, guess what? Just grin and bear it. That was pretty much the Stoic philosophy. Uh, they also believed that there was no real direction or destiny for man. They had no sense of divine presence or divine guidance. They just kind of said, you know, in this life, just be strong and endure it. It'll just come and it goes. So indifference, indifference was the key to life for the Stoic. They were stern. They were impassive. And they were apathetic. Two very different philosophies that Paul encountered in Athens. But two philosophies that, were, that, that are today very active in our, in our country. And unfortunately sometimes have, have kind of bled into the church. That idea of, you know, you come to Christ, you get everything you want, everything you can have, you know, you shouldn't be sick, you can, you know, you can work toward all of these things and, and, and just be prosperous and successful and whatnot. 
Or you can go on the other extreme, you know, because there are many people in the church that just say, well, you know, I, got, I just got to take it. You know, whatever happens, happens, you know. Both are, both are wrong. Both are wrong attitudes when we deal with the issue of faith because we talked about faith earlier. To have the shield of faith is to say, I believe that God has called me into whatever ministry he's given me. I believe that he's going to be with me. I believe he's going to protect me. And with God and with Christ being my whole armor, that he's going to shield me. And when I do deal with things, he's going to lift me up. But what, what is it that the thought is that people have today? There's some people in the church that say they're Christians, but they have no faith in God. They have no faith in Christ. These people need to get back into the Word of God. They need to get back into prayer. They need to get back into, into devotions. They need to realize, but maybe they just need to come to Jesus. Because Paul himself said in Romans 14.23, whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So it's sad then that these, these philosophies have kind of just, you know, entered into the church. Not to say that it, 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 it maintains the church. No. The church is still the church and the church still stands upon the word of God and the true church still stands upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And being that we are human beings, you know, we, we struggle with the flesh, but we know that God is, the, you know, that the Lord in us is greater than he that's in this world. We have God's Word, we have God's strength, and we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Listen, if we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, man, we're empowered. Amen? All right, just want to make sure you're here. So these two philosophies, let's get back to Paul here, we're almost done here. These two philosophies, along with all the others, because there were many philosophies at that time, these were just the two prominent philosophies, these philosophies were man's attempts to come to terms with life and all of its passions, all of its problems, and all of its potentials. And as different as they were, they were in agreement with one thing. You know what that was? That Paul was a babbler. They both agreed. Paul's a babbler. Paul's a seed picker. Because you see, that was a word that described the bird that was pecking its seeds. When, when used of men, it meant that they were making a lot of noise, but saying nothing important. To them, that's what Paul was doing. Saying a lot of words, but to them it wasn't important. So they were calling him a seed picker. They should talk. I mean, look at verse 21. Remember I told you we'll come to 21? Look at what it says. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else <laughs> but to tell or to hear some new thing. Seed pickers. So I guess, you know, it takes one to know one, you know. They called him a babbler. They thought that Paul was proclaiming new gods that were foreign to them. They thought that Jesus and resurrection were the names, names of two new gods. But, be, but because Paul was provoked, because Paul was provoked, he proclaimed. Because Paul was provoked, he proclaimed. If you leave here today with anything, leave with this thought. That when we are provoked by the things that are happening in this country and in this world, then we need to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul was provoked. And because he was provoked, he proclaimed, never losing his focus on the gospel as the power of God to save. And we're going to see that most next week. But let's close with this 
passage that we read today together, verses 22 and 23, just to remind you of something. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now they were all probably saying, Thank you, but he was saying, No, I don't mean it that way. I'm cutting you down. This is not a positive message to you. I perceive that in all things you are very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship... I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing Him, I proclaim to you. Who's He speaking of? Who's He going to talk about? Jesus Christ. You see, Paul never lost his focus. And as we shall see next week, he never lost his footing either. That's the next point, but that's next week. He didn't lose his focus. He won't lose his footing. He stayed focused on his text. He stayed focused on his mission. He stayed focused on the gospel. Also, as we shall see next time, Paul preached to them the God that can be known. The God that can be known. The sad thing about life today is that a lot of people are worshiping gods they don't even know. They're worshiping gods that can't be known, don't want to be known, won't let you be known, won't let them be known. We serve a God. That, I know, that not only wants to be known, but knows us. That's pretty special, isn't it? The God who knows us. The God who calls us by name. The God who knew us before we were even in our mother's womb. Special, isn't it? What a precious God we have. What an awesome God we have. What a glorious God we have. What a mighty God we have. What an awesome God we serve but please consider this the reason for the breakdown in the spiritual and moral values in our country today is that as a nation we have lost sight of the one true God we have lost sight of the one true God And it saddens me that the problem today is that we're, as a nation, trying to depend on man and flesh to solve our problems, to save us from where we are. Look at the crisis we're in today. Financially. You see, at the risk of being presumptuous, and we shouldn't be presumptuous, but at the risk of being presumptuous, we as Christians need to know that our trust is not in the financial system of this country. Our trust is in God, who gives us everything we need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ. The answer to America's problems is not political. 
The answer to America's problems is spiritual. And although as a nation, pretty much, we've forgotten God, God has not forgotten us. And we need to turn back to God. There may be many of you here today who realize your need to come back to God and to come back to Christ. You know, and it's easy. I mean, it's easy to to, to play the spiritual game. But it's not about games. It's about the fact that there is a God who says, I am God, there is no other. And Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And we need to get right with Him. And we need to come back to God. And so maybe today, you're here. And this is speaking to your heart. Maybe you've never come to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Today would be the day to do that. Maybe you're a Christian, but you've walked away from the Lord. You've gotten busy with things and, and, and gotten tied up with those things. And you're, you know, those things rule your life. Paul says, let not sin have dominion over you. Let Christ have dominion in your life. Come back to Jesus today. Come back to the Lord. And when you do come back, realize that you have something that the world needs. And that's the hope that lies in Jesus Christ. That hope lies within us, uh, Peter said. Be prepared and ready to give an answer to every man of the hope that lies within you. And if you receive that from Jesus, then you go tell someone. Be provoked, be stirred by the things that you've seen and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.